0: So as we come to understand that gospel story, uh, we then begin uh, to to identify goals. And not goals to, to make the, the grief go away, because we said the grief is something that we are going to assimilate into our story. It's part of who we are, who we are. We can't erase that chapter. But the goals are to combat the impact of my suffering. And when we start talking about goals, it's one of those points where we just want to make it better. Uh, But Joseph Lehman, I think he helps us temper our expectations. He says, it is something altogether different to say that God's grace is sufficient for today when tomorrow holds no hope of any significant change. Again, how do I pray when the one thing that I want most is something that I know will not be answered? And in this case, Joseph Lehman uh, writes as a widowed father who lost his wife uh, in a traffic accident. Just two days before she passed in that accident, he told her that he felt like his faith was a hollow expression of external activities. And he was beginning to question his very faith itself. They had just recently had their only child. And at the time when he wrote this article, it was a decade later, and one of his goals, one of his dreams, one of the things that he wanted most, was to be able to be married again. And to share his life, and to give his child a mother... And that dream had, to that point, been unfulfilled. And, and he writes, in a tone of hope, and we'll hear from him again in a bit, it's something altogether different to say God's grace is sufficient for today when tomorrow holds no hope of any significant change. And I think as we talk about identifying goals, we, we have to be careful because this is the point where, where we can want to say something like this. Uh, I have Saturday open, and, and, and I want to get um, you know, a lot of journaling in, and then I want to cry you know, as much as I can, and then I want to write a letter and get as much of that assimilated as I can. And I'd like to conquer about half of this grief stuff this Saturday because I've got that time available. Uh, at least that's how I would want to, to go about it. And we're not going to be able to identify goals in that way. And the other thing that we run into is that when we identify goals, we want want to make it better. And we have to remember, because we're talking about suffering, that we did not cause our grief, and therefore we cannot uncause it. And if we try to do that, then our grief will begin to be complicated by that sense of guilt and failure and fear and pressure and all of those things that that make it unclean, that make it fester and infected, begin to get reintroduced. And I don't want our language of goals to be the entry point for that to happen. Now, uh, Judy Bloor, in talking about what we can do, she says one of the things that we can do is to demonstrate how to be sad and to hope and trust at the same time. Because sometimes we, especially when we think of grief as an emotion, we think of progress as the absence of sadness. And if I'm sad, I don't think I'm making progress. And so I think it's important as we talk about how we would hold those things together that we, that we talk about what is progress and what progress is not. Well, one thing, progress does not mean that you can or should forget. It's not possible, and if it was, it wouldn't be healthy. We're not ripping this chapter out of my life and trying to pretend as if it never happened. We're starting to look at what the next chapter of my life would look like and how it's going to be richer and fuller in light of this experience as painful and tragic as it was. Progress does mean that you're able to enjoy the good memories. And Appendix D in the back of your seminar gives you a list of ways uh, that you can capture healthy memories and that you can make sure that they're there and you don't have to live in the fear. If I don't replay them constantly, then they're going to be gone and the only thing that I have is taken from me. How do we capture memories in a healthy way? Uh, Appendix D helps us with that because progress does mean that we can enjoy the good memories. Progress does not mean that you no longer feel pain because of your loss. Too often we think of grief in an addiction mindset and pain becomes a relapse. And it carries with that sense of shame and failure. And those are those complicating variables that we want to put away. Progress does not mean that you no longer feel pain. Progress does mean that you experience a lessening of that pain. That with time it does become less intense, not less real. Progress does not mean that you believe life is fair or understand why. We, we've talked about the fact that we may not get a why. Most of the times we do not. And that death is the intrusion of sin into our world, and therefore by definition it is not fair. Now progress does mean that you can accept the different aspects of your loss. Yet, uh, progress means remembering your loved one realistically. Oftentimes, when we lose a loved one, they become a saint. They become perfect. Uh, and if anybody says anything negative that might be related to the loved one that we lost, there is this intense reaction against that. Or everything that they did becomes good. In their life, but comes in some ways our standard of Jesus. Because being like them is a way that we feel like we have a piece of them with us. And progress in grief means that we remember them realistically strengths and weaknesses. In the letter that we read, one of the things I miss is your stubbornness. Oh, it It's a real, authentic memory of that person. Progress means that you are growing in your walk with God. Uh, Now, Gary Thomas gives us another area to think about identifying goals. He says, Times of deprivation, ill health, and even war don't preclude the need for pleasure. On the contrary, such seasons accentuate the need to find and perhaps rediscover the simplest pleasures of all. If I want to prove to you that I went to school for a really long time, I use a word like adhedonia, uh, which basically means the loss of pleasure. It is a common experience within the, loss, within the experience of grief. That things that I once used to enjoy, just I don't enjoy them anymore. And part of identifying goals that are that are healthy, that combat the impact of my suffering is learning to enjoy those most simple and basic things again. If it was for me, and then this just gives you my kind of personal quirks and preferences, it might involve a cup of dark roast coffee, sitting outside, listening to birds and watching squirrels. It might involve getting out on an open body of water and just enjoying fishing in nature as something that is relaxing and satisfying and just reminds me that my world is bigger than everything that I try so fiercely to control and to manage. And learning to enjoy things like that again, that in a moment of losing someone that was dear to me, that those things would just they would seem so distant, so distasteful. But part of healthy goals after grief is learning to enjoy and savor those things again. Uh, Gary Thomas, he breaks up identifying goals into a different set of patterns. He says the griever encounters four often difficult, time-consuming tasks. Uh, Some of these we've covered in different ways. Uh, To accept the reality of the loss. To feel and consciously admit the pain of the loss. This includes untangling oneself from the ties that binds us to the deceased. To adjust to an environment in which the deceased person is missing. And four, to form new relationships. The last seems the most difficult because people feel both guilty and insecure about reinvesting their energies in new relationships. And I bring this quote up here because it's different from what we've been talking about. Uh, We've talked about nine steps. Gary Thomas is talking about four goals. In some ways, this is um, like Yogi Berra, uh, the great philosopher who went to order a pizza. And uh, they asked Yogi, do you want that cut in uh, four slices or eight? And he said, better make it four. I don't think I could eat eight. There are different ways to approach the subject of grief. And we're not saying that this is the only the God-ordained nine-step way to go about that. If there are other things that you have found immensely helpful, I don't want you to feel insecure or like something wasn't done right because of that. Uh, we just, in the way that we have designed these, we are trying to create a clear picture of how the gospel speaks to that and the way that we can see the relevance of that. And that's why we've organized them this way. Now in terms of Gary Thomas's uh, steps here, uh, another way that I would divide that is uh, there's two types of times that we need to prepare for. Uh, The predictably hard times and the unpredictably hard times. And the predictably hard times can fall into specific days. Mother's Day, a birthday, an anniversary, or activities. uh, Cleaning out a room, uh, going back to school, uh, something like that. And what I'm going to give you here is just ten suggestions. In your notebook, I gave you eighteen. I'm going to pop them off pretty quick here. Hear this as a buffet, uh, not as a protocol. These are things for you to glean from that when you just say, those times that I know they're going to be hard, uh, what kinds of things can I use to prepare for that? This is the buffet. Have a plan for the day. Don't wake up and then think how am I going to get through the day? Start the day. Don't wake up at whatever time that you can sleep through and go, dang, I didn't sleep till Tuesday. Um, Begin and end the day with God. Uh, We've got an appendix full of passages of Scripture that speak to the subject of grief and hope and loss. Um, I would encourage you to Begin and end those predictably hard days with some of the psalms that are found within there. Take time to remember: uh, don't just avoid for the entire day. Let mourning is an important and healthy part of it. Don't try to do too much. We've talked about how physically taxing grief can be. Uh, don't make it a full list of all the things that I could do to make this the best grieving day ever. Give yourself time to rest. Make sure that you have some time with people. Uh, don't try to do it alone. Uh, identify the elements of your suffering story that attach to that day or that activity. Whatever you know that each day, each activity may have different themes of that suffering story that just stand out and become more tempting for you to think of it. Going into the day, try to reflect and anticipate which themes are going to become most difficult for you. If we're talking about activities or changes within a home or a work environment, start with the smaller changes first. Maybe you take a new family picture before you take any family picture down. Maybe you select the things that you're going to put in a memory box or one of the other healthy memory. Uh, tactics that we talked about in the appendix, maybe you begin to put those things away as treasures that will be kept in a place of honor before you try to take anything down that might feel like dishonor. Um, Those things that are no longer needed, uh, give those to a cause that's important to your loved one so that you can have a sense that their life is having an ongoing impact in the ways that are important to them. If you give it to an organization, you might request that as they see the fruit of that, that they would send you letters uh, and to let you know the way that that contribution is making a difference so that you can hear the impact uh, that your loved one was having. As you go through something like write a letter about what you're doing because in the midst of activities like this we get this repetitive internal conversation that just keeps going and going and going and we'll have the same conversation with ourselves dozens if not hundreds of times as we anticipate and do and reflect on an event like this and putting it in paper form helps tame some of that now when it comes to the unpredictably hard times You know, it's almost a misnomer to say that I'm going to prepare for the unpredictable. Uh, That's a recipe for self-torture. But I think the question that we can ask is, where will I run? And this is where community becomes so very important. And why Appendix C, where we talk about small groups being prepared and knowing when the hard times are going to be, at least those that are predictable, and it... Who am I going to call? Yes, I'm going to pray, but who am I going to call that's going to who's going to pray with me? Where am I going to run? Uh, that is a vital question to ask in the predictably hard times. And then finally with step seven, Paul Tripp says, grievers seek comfort. But where do they find it? The Bible reminds us that all true comfort has as its source the Lord. In grief, we often seek other comforts, memories, material things, distractions. Uh, They all provide some measure of comfort, but none of them can fill the one place where grief causes us to feel so empty, our hearts. When you grieve, you are vulnerable to temptations you would normally resist. The enemy of your soul attacks in your weakest moment. Here we're reminded of Luke 4.13. Where after Jesus' temptation, it says that Satan left for a more opportune time. And times of grief are times when our adversary would take as his more opportune time. And this is where we should receive comfort about what Scripture has to say about spiritual warfare. It doesn't call us to go on the attack and vanquish Satan at a time when we already feel depleted. It just calls us to stand firm. And in the moments of our grief, that really may be all we feel like we can do. If even that. And again, that's where our community of faith becomes so important. Now you might read this quote and feel like what Gary Thomas said about simple pleasures and what Paul Tripp says about unhealthy forms of self-rescue, that those are at odds. Uh, They're not. Uh, Paul Tripp and Gary Thomas are friends and, and what they say here uh, are friendly pieces. It, and so I'll try to draw some distinctions. Things like alcohol, drugs, uh, or starting a new romantic relationship within that first year uh, are never good ideas during grief. Um, activities that have a strong zoning out quality, uh, tend to lean into escapism. And so we want to be on guard for those kinds of things. Uh, activities that replace, replace healthy social times. Pouring myself into work so that I don't have to go to small group where people might actually ask me a question about how I'm doing. Um, they, they take on this self-protective by isolation quality. And so under identifying goals, one of those big questions that we have is what does a balanced life look like now? Again, the one that I lost, whether it be a person, a role, an activity, they, they probably took a significant amount of my time both in terms of active engagement in my thought life and just the way that I structure my life, and under healthy goals, I start to ask, what does a healthy life look like now? God has given me a 168-hour week. How do I divide that week now that honors and glorifies Him, that I can enjoy and feel His pleasure as I do that? What does that look like? That's a, a good way of capturing what we're after there.